This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. And aren't we lucky to have a legendary star in our in our midst and gonna to talk to us today? Here he is, Gary Owens. Thank you very much, Van. It's a pleasure to be here among all you today. I've known many of you for many, many years, and uh, meeting some of you for the first time, and it's great. Uh, music has been a part of my life, I don't know, probably since I was about four years old. I don't play an instrument, but I listen to instruments, and I love composers and arrangers. Because uh, one, one day I was interviewing Hoagie Carmichael some years ago, and he said, uh, you know, Music is my life no matter what I do. I said, do you have three favorite songs that you've written? Stardust, I knew, would be correct. And he said, yeah, it may surprise you, but my other two favorites are The Nearness of You and One Morning in May. And I said, that's very much a surprise because they're both big songs, but One Morning in May hardly gets played, and it should he said, I don't know, it's just my own three favorites. Those are the ones. Uh, how lucky can you be in a business where I guess I've done maybe 15,000 interviews. I have a book coming out late next year of just Hollywood anecdotes, depending on a lot of things. Lee and I were chatting a few moments ago about this. Um, my wife's best friend was Sue Young, uh, the wife of the chancellor of UCLA, Chuck Young, for many, many things. So we, we would go to football games, basketball games, etc., etc., and always enjoy them. So one evening, as a surprise, we had dinner with Charlton Heston and Lydia Heston. And uh, I said, of all your films, and this is my basic questioning, what's your own favorite? He said, I think I like Will Penny of all the films I've been in. I said, well, that's interesting. That's very interesting. I said, because my wife and I are both science fiction fans, um, we enjoyed Soylent Green, the marvelous novel by Harry Harrison some years ago. And he said, I've got to tell you something. That was one of the saddest moments in my life, the scene in the euthanasia parlor. Have you all seen Soylent Green? Oh, yeah. Either on television, marvelous movie. Anyway, they're burning all the books in the future. and. Uh, Robinson, Eddie Robinson, goes into the euthanasia parlor and is injected with a lethal serum that will kill him in a few moments. And on the screen is a diorama of uh, your favorite music, your favorite scenes, and you're listening to your favorite classical music, for example. And so Heston arrives too late to save his life. And so the director said, Okay, Chuck, okay, Eddie, uh, let's just do one take on this. That's all you need, one take. You guys are such pros. So they start out, and Heston said, I'm sorry, I'm not here on time, whatever it is. And uh, Eddie Robinson looks at him and said, this is for real, Chuck. He said, well, that isn't your line. He said, no, I'm actually dying. The doctor yesterday gave me three days to live. This is my last scene I will ever do. 
So instead of putting glycerin in his eye, they did one more take. Those are actual tears from Charlton Heston, who's just found out. And that's one of the anecdotes within my book. So they're not all silly and goofy things, but I thought, what a, what a strange, wonderful, yet sad moment that was. That was the last picture for Edward G. Robinson, who died shortly thereafter. But Heston had tears telling it to us, to my wife and I at the time. Um, I started in radio when I was 16 years old. I'm now 18 years old, which I, I aged very quickly, as you know. Um, I've written a couple of songs myself. One was on the million-selling album, Bobby Boris Pickett's Monster Mash. I wrote Monster Party at that time, but I couldn't play it on the air because you can't play something you've written yourself if you're a disc jockey or a radio personality, as we like to say. <laughs> to make it more spiffy than it really is. Um, the other song, of course, I, whenever you go to Disneyland, I wrote the love theme from Ernest Borgnine's Haunted Underwear Ride. So whenever you go on that, I'm the one responsible for that. Uh, and But Beautiful, remember that great standing? I wrote one called But Beautiful and so is the rest of her. Uh, um, Rosie Pluviata, the great part of being in both radio and television and motion pictures and cartoons is you work with everybody. Uh, Rosie Clooney became a very dear friend of ours, and one day she says, Gary, I'm going to have a neighbor of mine uh, be a guest for lunch today. Is that okay? I said, oh, certainly. KMPC will pick up the tab. You can bring a number of friends. So we go over to the Brown Derby on Vine Street, and we're sitting there, and uh, I, she's not introduced her neighbor. And Rosie says, excuse me, I've got to go to the restroom. I'll be right back. And I said, I'm sorry, we haven't met. Uh, Rosie didn't introduce you, but she said you were a, a next-door neighbor. He said, I'm Ira Gershwin. I said, oh, my God, I can't believe this. <laughs> you know, I can remember when George said to you, what's a good color for a rhapsody? <laughs> so anyway, we all chatted for, for two hours that day, and I said, I'm in heaven. I said, one of my favorite songs that you wrote for, I think, Lady in the Dark was uh, My Ship, which doesn't get a lot of airplay, but such a delightful lyric to the song. And so uh, over the years, you have a chance to work with so many people. Uh, just to mention them, you probably have all worked with. Uh, one day, a young man from North Hollywood is uh, writing a paper for his school. And he said, uh, Earl C. Festoon was an old man that I played on my radio show for 47 years. Hello, which way am I facing? <laughs> facing north now, Earl. Thank you. Hello and hi. Well, thank you very much, Earl. And he said, I want to do an article about Earl C. Festoon for his new school newspaper. <laughs> and uh, uh, I said, uh, are you in the business? Are your folks in the business? He said, yes, my father is David Raxon. <laughs> and who wrote, of course, uh, Laura and uh, what was the one with Beautiful? Oh, uh, Bad and the Beautiful, one of the most beautiful songs ever written. A week later, I get an autographed album of the best music of, Albert, of David Raxon. And so I'm like a fan, uh, even though I've been lucky to be in the middle of all shows. I guess I've done maybe 1,500 national television shows. Uh, 
15,000 national and local radio shows and 3,000 animated cartoons. I played Space Ghost for 26 years for Hanna-Barbera and it's still running in syndication all the way around. Uh, I started with a man named Walt Disney back in 1961 when we first came to Hollywood. And I was narrating Goofy, Sport Goofy, Goofy Goes Fishing, um, Casey at the Bat. I took over for Jerry Colonna, who had done it back in the 40s, and they wanted to update it to the 60s at that time. So anyway, I'm at Disney Studios, and as you know, the doors are this thick, the Buena Vista part. And uh, so I'm just standing there, and I said, who's going to be the director for this? And they said, we don't know. Four engineers are standing around, and they're all reading the newspaper. The chief engineer gets a phone call. He is. Oh, oh, okay, thank you. Clean this place up. It's Mr. Disney is walking down the hall. Oh, my God. They didn't expect Walt Disney to be in. Now, nobody knows why Walt is there because he's not directing the thing. But I'm narrating at least two cartoons that morning. So he comes in. But prior to his coming in, I'm standing like this against the thick door. An engineer from the other studio comes in, slams it, and breaks my little finger. <laughs> I'm in terrible pain. So just at this point, I'm bleeding on their carpet. Walt Disney comes in. He says, are you Gary? And I said, yes, I am. I, I, you, I don't know. You know, I can't believe I'm talking to Walt Disney. He said, well, I want to tell you something. Two friends of yours, including your boss, put money into Disneyland. One is Gene Autry, your boss. The other is our flank letter. And I said, well, that's wonderful. I didn't know that. He said, our flank letter gets money every time anyone buys a Kodak film. Oh. He owns all of the cupolas that have Kodak films for sale at Disneyland. But he, you know, when Walt was starting, he didn't have a lot of money. And they helped, uh, you know, finance. Disneyland. So anyway, I'm, I'm in good stead then. So he says, are you okay? I said, well, I'd love to shake your hand, Mr. Disney, but I'm bleeding right now. He said, you are, aren't you? Get me a nurse over here right away. In about two minutes, a nurse comes in, puts a splint on my finger, and we chat for five or ten minutes. Okay, well, then Walt has to leave. But that was the reason he came in, because I worked for Gene Autry, his longtime pal, and our plank letter, his longtime pal. So I'm narrating. And the, the director says, uh, are you okay? Are you all right? You've got a splint like this. And he said, I said, well, maybe I could be a cartoon character with only three fingers if I lose a couple more here. Uh, because they only had three fingers, because the animators would save money by having only three fingers on a character. That's part of it. So anyway, I'm narrating, well, today Goopy is out on the ground, and of course his yacht falling in the native and that's the way you do it when you're underwater. Hello, Wozo. How is your nose? That's what you do, and then they add a water sound effect to it. Uh, so anyway, that was my first meeting of Walt Disney, which was a great thing. But music has been my life for a long time. Bob Russell was a friend of mine. Johnny Mercer was a good friend of mine. Uh, I was interviewing David Rose one day, and I said, well, you were married to Judy Garland. Uh, he said, yes, I was. He was. And he said, but you know who her secret boyfriend was when I, when I first met Judy? I said, no. He said, Johnny Mercer. Johnny Mercer and she were 
were having an affair together. And uh, I took her away from Johnny Mercer. Well, that's wonderful. Let's hear it for David Rose. Uh, who, was, who was marvelous. And of course, the music conductor for the Red Skelton show. Sammy Kahn, a longtime friend of mine. Um, Harry Ruby. I, there is a picture that I'm passing around here of a group of us that got together. I was on the Board of Governors for the Grammys for years, for the Emmys for a number of years. And uh, you have a chance to meet so many people just through that alone. I was the announcer, I think, seven years for the Grammy Awards and five years for the Emmy Awards. And uh, you get to meet everybody. Something you may not know, Dorothy Fields, who wrote with Harold Arlen, of course, so many songs like Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, etc., etc., uh, was the daughter of Lou Fields of the vaudeville comedy team of Weber and Fields. That was his daughter, Lou Fields' daughter. And uh, sometimes, unless you ask questions, stupid questions, which I'm famous for, I thought it would always be funny if Claude Debussy and Dorothy Fields wrote a song together. What would you do? Well, it would be called Debussy Fields. We all remember Debussy Fields, of course. Will Fowler was one of my best friends. Will Fowler was the son of Gene Fowler, W.C. Fields' best friend. And he would spike his oatmeal with baby Leroy and with Will Fowler when he was a little kid. And he showed me a photo of W.C. Fields and himself wandering around in the kitchen at Fields' house which was in Las Feliz at that time. And Will, who is nine years old, is drunk. And W.C. Fields made him drunk, which was the nicest thing he could do for him at the time, as you know. But uh, I have a whole book of anecdotes coming out. There'll be over two, I think 2,500 anecdotes. It'll be late next year. And, uh, you know, so the, the best way to do it is not within a small framework of time. Are there any questions? Because I don't want to get you back to work late. Uh, we've got about 20 minutes to two. Uh, any questions? Who's your publisher for that book? Well, McGraw-Hill published the last two books I wrote. I'm not sure that I'll go with, uh, with that particular publisher at this time because I was telling the guys a few minutes ago, uh, I don't blame them. But two young ladies had just gotten out of college, and they were the editors for one of my books. Uh, I sent about 2,000 pictures to this particular publisher, and, uh, you know, I don't expect them that they're only 22, 23 years old to know who all the pictures, but the picture's name uh, in the back. So if it's uh, Tali Savalas and myself, they would say Tali Savalas and Gary together, and that's all they had to do. And so apparently the little yellow sticker on one of these photos came off, and uh, I get a phone call from New York. Uh, Mr. Owens, uh, who's that nice-looking guy and the woman in the picture next to you? I said, well, I sent about 2,000 pictures to you. Um, so they explained the background of people in the background. I said, I think that's the carousel ball in Denver, Colorado. I was on the board, the advisory board. Uh, it's now in its 25th year. We would raise $4 million in one day for juvenile diabetes. I've had diabetes since I was eight years old, and they gave me about a year to live at that time. And I don't know if I did or not. No one has ever told me. But anyway, we raised $4 million on this one day 
for the carousel ball, and we're still doing it. It'll be coming up in October again. So anyway, I said, well, explain again who those people are, and I can tell you. Well, he's got white hair. He's got dark glasses on, horn-rimmed glasses. I said, you don't know who that is? Probably one of the most famous movie stars. Entertainment Weekly called him the top movie star of all time. Cary Grant. Oh. They didn't know who Cary Grant was. <laughs> and they didn't credit in the book. So you don't always say, you know, when you're, you know, when you're writing a book or publishing a book, you don't have control of what their values are. They may be different than your own values, and that just happens. But I said, oh my God, um, it's just so amazing. My wife has a story unto herself. Uh, Carrie Grant, now, uh, we're flying back from Denver to Hollywood. Uh, we go to the Garrett Aerospace, where we had a private plane. Marvin Davis owned six Gulfstream jets. At that time, $30 million a jet. But he was so great to Hollywood, and he bought 20th Century Fox. And he brought everybody in from Hollywood, Merv Griffin, Lucille Ball. So anyway, I go down to get the LA Times at the Brown Palace Hotel, and I see Lee Salters and Barry Diller are talking to each other. And I said, is there any way of us getting an earlier flight back to Los Angeles? Because i got to speak tomorrow night, and I haven't written a speech yet. Um, well, let me see what I can do. He comes back about two minutes later. Yeah, can you get ready in about 20 minutes? I said, well, my wife is still upstairs sleeping. We got in at 3 this morning. I don't know. Hopefully we can, because it would help me. So I told my wife, if we can uh, get together, if we can get packed in about 10 minutes, they'll limo us to the airport, and we'll be on an earlier flight. We'll get out at about 11 this morning. Oh, God, Gary. Can't you wait until later? Well, I guess I can write it on the plane, but uh, okay. She said, well, let me see what you She's still in bed. She's been sleeping. So it's like in those jokes where you put your luggage together and you cut all the excess <laughs> wardrobe that you have. Well, here's your tuxedo shirt. Oh, I'm sorry. We've cut it off putting this together. Anyway, we get together in 20 minutes. We limo picks this up. We go to the airport. And she hasn't combed her hair or put her lipstick on yet, which is the worst thing you can do to any lady anywhere, you know. So anyway, we get in the we get in the plane, and Milton Burrow and Ruth Burrow are sitting next to us. Uh, Merv Griffin and his pal are sitting next to us. Um, Henry Kissinger and his wife, Gerald Ford and Betty Ford are over here. Lucille Ball and Gary Wharton are over here. And right across from us is Cary Grant and Barbara Grant. She said, I'll never forget you for this. <laughs> she said, you know, two feet from Cary Grant on the whole flight back to LA. She said, I will never forgive you for this. You don't do this to a lady. And of course, we're joking all the time. Uh, a comedian who will be nameless, Fat Jack Nameless, you remember. Uh, nameless is sitting in the plane with us. He and his wife are in the plane. Anyway, he did a lot of wonderful impressions, and uh, but you don't do it in front of Cary Grant. He would come back and, and do Judy, Judy, Judy. You know. Uh, anyway, he goes back to entertain the pilot and the co-pilot and the navigator on the plane. At this point, Cary Grant turns to everybody and he said, "Would any of you do a big favor for me?" "Oh, certainly, Cary. What, what would you like? What would you like? Anything we can do." 
would you throw that man off the plane? <laughs> Terry Grant said. I said, that's wonderful. That's another story in the book. But uh, for 25 years now, we've been doing the carousel ball. We've raised millions and millions of dollars. Uh, the man in this country is a good friend of mine. Uh, and I, we've chatted before the luncheon today. Uh, every week, I have lunch with Sid Caesar, Monty Hall. Monty Hall has raised $800 million for charity. Isn't that great? What a great man he is. And he just gives of himself. He gets no pay for it. Nothing like that. And, uh, of course, not only Sid Caesar, but uh, Monty Hall, um, Carl Reiner is at every lunch that we have. Arthur Hiller, the great motion picture director. Uh, Arthur had a wonderful story last week that you may enjoy. When he was doing Love Story, directing Love Story in New York, Ryan O'Neill has just come from television, from uh, Peyton Place. And so he's in a taxi in New York. And uh, so Ryan gets in the back of the taxi and the guy says, you know, I have a lot of movie stars. I see you got makeup on. Are you a movie star? He said, well, this is basically my first film. I, uh, I've done television before. I hope to be a movie star. Well, uh, you know, uh, so many phonies that I pick up. Last week, I picked up a guy. He's kind of heavyweight. He's totally bald. And he tried to tell me he was Ray Milan. It was Ray Milan. <laughs> so Ryan O'Neill comes back and tells Arthur Hiller about it. Ray Milan is in the movie, of course. But uh, you couldn't write that in a comedy sketch. Um, but uh, my first job in Hollywood, other than radio and television, I used to work for Channel 13, and I would do four comedy specials a year for them. Then we would syndicate it for Chris Craft around the country. Uh, that was my first television in Hollywood. I worked in Denver at KBTV, which was an ABC affiliate. I would do a kiddie show from 1 to 1.30 in the afternoon. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I would do the news. So if you dressed in a clown suit, you had to get out of that. So I'm chatting one day with a friend of mine from Omaha, Nebraska, where I had been before coming to Denver. And he says, oh, Gary, I, we just moved to Denver. I love your show. I love your radio show, and I love your... And I was a newscaster also for the Mutual Network at that time. We had 168 stations all over the West Coast. So anyway, I've got to change out of this outfit, but I'm talking to a friend, and I forget what time it is. The stage manager, I'm wearing a chicken suit. I've got a beak over my head and some very bad-looking feathers. Not Leonard Feather, uh, or his family. And so anyway, uh, the guy says, Jerry, you got to get ready. you got to put on your suit. I had a vest on under it, but not my, my coat. So I said, can you take the zipper out the back? He rips the zipper, and I can't get out of the chicken suit. So two minutes, I've got to be on the air. So now today I would do jokes, but then I'm just really starting in the business. Good afternoon, Denver. Federal mediators on Capitol Hill today, you know, a typical newscast. Uh, whatever it is. And I'm fired from my newscaster's job. I can't imagine why. <laughs> Wearing a chicken suit for five minutes, giving the news. Now today, you would do jokes about, you know, whatever it would be. But uh, at that time, that was all a stunner for me of some kind. Uh, my first job in Hollywood, other than working at KFWB, uh, every market I was working in for radio, 
Fortunately, I was number one on the ratings, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, started in rock and roll, then switched to adult standards, where you would play Sinatra, Dean Martin, Peggy Lee, Lena Horne, Ella Fitzgerald, etc., etc. But I made the switch from rock and roll because all the people in rock and roll were not making any money on the outside doing very many commercials or doing national television. They would do dance band shows, but not other things. So uh, when I switched to KNBC, all the casting directors at Universal and Fox and so on would listen to my radio show. And that's how I, I did so many TV shows, and The Munsters, Michaela's Navy, all of those shows, I would play something. And uh, so that was a big help for me. And by switching formats, that was an adult standard format. The other was rock and roll. Even though we had bigger ratings in rock and roll, which you did, of course, in those days, that was, that was part of it. Uh, I also wrote for uh, Jay Ward Productions. Jay Ward was the man who created Rocky and Bullwinkle, Fractured Flickers, and so I was a writer there at that same time that Alan Burns was there, who created Mary Tyler Moore, Lou Grant, Rhoda, all of those shows, and uh, Chris Hayward, one of the creators of Barney Miller. Uh, so it was at a great time. It was like heaven for being a comedy writer. You were working with all these great people. George Atkins, who wrote every Mr. Magoo cartoon, was there. Uh, Gerald McBoing Boing, which was written by Dr. Seuss, which, by the way, is not pronounced Seuss. I met him in La Jolla, California, at a party some years ago, about 25 years ago. And I said, where did you get the name Dr. Seuss? He said, well, it's my middle name, Theodore Blank Geisel, but it's my mother's maiden name, and it's not pronounced Seuss. It's Seuss. It's German. So we've all been mispronouncing Dr. Seuss. It's Dr. Seuss is the correct pronunciation of the thing. He also created the name or the word nerd in one of his books in 1952. So something that you didn't care to know, you could take with you. Gary Owens said something really stupid the other day. <laughs> but anyway, uh, some of the thrills, Neil Hefty is a very dear friend of mine. Neil should be a member of your group, by the way. Is he? Yeah, good. Say hello for me. I haven't seen him. I think we're supposed to have lunch in the next week or so, a couple of weeks. Uh, but so many people, Linda McCartney, Linda McCartney was not her real name, as you know, Linda Eastman, but that wasn't her real name either. Did you know that? Yeah, Epstein was her real name, her real last name. And uh, uh, I did, uh, I did a, a concert that was so unusual. One day, Capitol Records gave me a call and said, Gary, we'd like to have you MC a going-away party for Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney. I said, well, that's great. Well, I've, I've known all of the Beatles, not collectively, but individually. And uh, so I drive out to the Queen Mary that evening. Everybody in Hollywood is there, but nobody knows about it unless they've been invited. You've got uh, Carl Holden sitting with Cher at the thing, uh, Tony Curtis, etc., etc., etc. And I said, wow, I can't believe this. I'm a, I'm a little kid at heart from a little town of 600 people in the Midwest. What am I doing here? So I see the thing, which was just great. And I got to know all of them so, so very well over the years. So part of the business, uh, 
when Van and Lee and I were chatting a few moments ago, we were saying how lucky we are. I don't think any of us went into the business because we did it for the money. We've been very lucky in making good money, but I never did it. I just enjoyed the periphery of it all. The fact that you could ad-lib for three straight hours uh, and say, well, I think that was a pretty good show I did. Because you could bring up anecdotes about the celebrities. Um, about uh, I've known Ray Charles since, I guess, 68. 1968 when we first met, when you were doing a lot of work with George Schlatter. George Schlatter and Ed Friendly and Rowan and Martin were the creators of Laugh-In. And of course, all four of them fought over who created the show. <laughs> uh, Ruth Buzzy and I were lucky to be the only two regular performers to do every show all six years. And we did 150 shows, as I recall. And it was so great. And uh, it's so wonderful to work with everyone. Lana Turner came in and I said, uh, Miss Turner, what can I do for you? She said, I'm trying to find a script. Do you know where it is? So we start chatting about things. And I said, was it Schwab's drugstore where you were discovered? She said, no. It was Curry's, the little drugstore across the street from Hollywood High School. It's been a misnomer that everybody says, yeah, she was discovered. She was not discovered at Schwab's. And she told me that in 1969. So there. But all the members of the Schwab family who are here today having an ice cream thing. <laughs> but um, over the years, it's just been wonderful. And as I say, I never went into it for the money. I've been lucky in making a very, very good living in a lot of different areas. Um, I used to work with so many different stars who were movie stars doing animated cartoons. Like on the perils of Penelope Pitstop, we would have a different movie star every week as a guest star. Paul Lynn was part of it there. And uh, Paul Lynn, Mel Blanc, I owned a company with Mel Blanc for 20 years. And we had our offices. Maybe, is it all right to tell this story? I think it's okay. Sure. None of you, all of you are over 18. Um, Mel Blanc, Hans Conrad, Holly Morris in the Sid Caesar show, Joni Gerber, and uh, there were three or four others of us. Jesse White there at 7.30 in the morning, about 8 o'clock. Mel has to go to Chicago and give a speech that night. We had an advertising agency and we syndicated radio shows for 500 cities around the country called Superplum. And I would do things like, and now the astrological forecast, like I used to do on Latin, those kind of things. And uh, in, in Goldie's case, just uh, if I may have an asterisk or a half asterisk for you, um, Goldie Hahn would laugh and giggle for a particular reason, and I'll tell you the secret of it. Goldie was just brilliant. She had done a show that only lasted, I think, about six or seven months called Good Morning World, and she was great no matter what she did. But she had this silly little laugh, and she had a marvelous personal manager named Art Simon. And Art got her a movie career. So she did laugh in for the first two seasons. But uh, George Schlatter and Ed Friendly and Dan Rowan and Dick Martin had a fun thing because they knew that Goldie would memorize. We had a script 300 pages long, that long. 16 different writers, including Artie Johnson and myself, who would contribute as writers to the show. So anyway, it's a thick thing like this, but she would memorize the entire program, even sketching she was not in. And uh, so therefore, 
you had cue cards, and she would use it as a guideline, but she did remember things. However, she would still look at the cards in case there was a change from Libra to Aquarius in the astrological forecast. So I would come on. Ladies and gentlemen, Latin presents the astrological forecast. Here is your narrator, Miss Goldie Hawn. Thank you, Gary. And she'd come up and she'd start talking about things. If you were born under the sign of Libra, you probably uh, work in a library and are a librarian. <laughs> <laughs> then pretty soon the cue card man would turn the cue card over and instead of the real line, something filthy is written there. Now she, that's why she would break up and laugh. Something very naughty would be on the cue card. Now, uh, they always knew she could get this marvelous giggle, but she just wouldn't giggle automatically. So that surprised her, and that's, that was the thought behind it all. It was nothing that you don't say every day, you know. But uh, in those days, perhaps. We had three censors, Herminio Traviasis, uh, Bill Clotworthy, and the other gentleman, I'm trying to think. But anyway, you can fill in your own name. It was Sandy Cummings, that's who it was. And they would look at us, and if we had a smile on our face, uh, you know, they would take the sketch out because they felt it was double entendre, or even a triple entendre. And that was the behind the scene uh, deal right now. I'm writing about maybe two chapters just on laughing in my new book, too. Uh, how lucky you can be to do everything. Working with Rita Hayworth, as they say, Lana Turner, John Wayne, all of these people. And we would have maybe five guest stars a week. They were usually paid now, this doesn't sound like much today, $5,000 for being a guest star for the week. But in 1968, that was a lot of money. It's a lot of money today for a lot of people, you know, including all of us. <laughs> but um, if you'd have Jim Garner in there, Jack Benny, they would do maybe a hundred lines. Then those lines could be used on a show 50 weeks from now as well. They would be paid again, but that was part of it. So one went this way, if you'd have a Henny Youngman on. Henny Youngman, when he would do the show, would always say, have I shown you my pride and, pride and joy, Owens? And I presume it was a grandson or a granddaughter. And he'd give you a little card, and it was a, a little bottle of joy and a bottle of pride. <laughs> so uh, of the thousands of people that we've worked with over the years, plus cartoons, and uh, uh, how lucky can we be, all of us? And music is a big, big part of my life. I enjoy it very much. Uh, our youngest son, Chris, gave me a new record player where you can play LPs again. And our oldest son, Scott, they're both TV producers. Scott is producing, he's the executive vice president of uh, the Endicom Corporation. They have 16 shows just on VH1 alone. Chris, our youngest son, uh, works at Warner Brothers with Mark Walper and David Walper, and they create quite a few shows also. So they're in the business, they're good kids, uh, they've never gone wrong except, of course, uh, sticking a corn cob in my ear on the 4th of July, that was it, but I'll forgive him for that, because everyone likes to do that, as you know. Uh, by the way, at this, at this particular juncture, you know, in this building, where you're sitting right now, you know what was here in 1959 at this same location? Uh, this was the Fernman building. 
Then the Brendan building had a most unusual thing. Two TV antennas were married right here. On this <laughs> and they got married. Now, the, the wedding wasn't much, but the reception was great. <laughs> oh, Jerry, you're I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But it's probably, probably a good way. It's 2 o'clock now. It's nice to see all of you. I love you. Take care. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.